Well, good evening, everybody. Um, it's good to be back with you again tonight. If we haven't met, my name is Kenny, and I'm the lead pastor here at Revolution. I hope you all had excellent weekends last weekend. If uh, Revolution didn't meet here last weekend for a, for a few reasons, one of which is because I genuinely was hoping everybody would do something fun and have a nice break. Another reason is because I was out of town, and so was like everybody that normally does stuff. And so it was going to be either like a full kind of scramble for everybody to, to do the church by themselves, or, or we were just going to give it a break for the weekend. So we chose break, and I hope that was really restful and good. My family and I, for our break, um, we traveled down to South Carolina, which is where I'm from, um, in order to see my folks uh, for the holiday. My grandparents, who I haven't seen in person in several years, were there, which was really great. And, and here's the thing. We left our kids there. <laughs> yeah. We came back on Monday, and I left my children in another state with their grandparents, which was so fantastic is the word that I'm looking for. <laughs> so Meredith and I have spent the last week enjoying something that we realized as we were driving home that we have never or not never but something we haven't experienced in more than a decade which was a week home or a week alone how am i wonder how wrote this some of you say how i wrote it a week alone at home together a week alone at home together and it was awesome we we've been out to eat together for like no particularly good reason we um, like not for a date. We watch shows, like adult shows during daytime hours, which is like <laughs> unbelievable. I'd say that I slept in a few times, but that's just not a true thing. And I'd say it's just, it's all been dizzying. The whole week's been dizzying, not just because we had this extra time, right? But because once we had that extra time, it was pretty overwhelming to try and figure out what exactly to do with it, how to best use it. And so tonight, what we're up to as we are continuing in what we've been calling our interlude series for the year, which is this series that we return to in the weeks in between our major teaching series of 2022. And for this year, these interludes that we've been returning to have all focused on the parables of Jesus. And on the three previous stops on this journey, we talked about how Jesus uses these stories, uses the parables and the analogies within the parables to talk about evangelism, to talk about the kingdom of God, and to talk about faith. And this week, we're looking at what Jesus has to say. Oh man, you guys, are you ready? I, can't, I, want, I wish I had a camera set up to capture your instant reactions. We are looking at what Jesus' parables have to say about managing money. No. <laughs> and here's the thing, there's a connection, there's a connection. Dante already read this sermon, so like it is extra worrisome that he's saying stop. Um, anyways, there's a connection here between this topic and that feeling that Meredith and I have been having for the past six days since we left the kids with their grandparents. When you realize that you've been given something valuable, this is the connection, right? When you realize that you've been given something valuable, what do you do with it? What do you do with it? How do you make the most of it? So let's clear the air, right? Dante's already voiced his feelings about the matter. Nobody likes sermons on money. It's a cliche in the church, right? Nobody likes money sermons. Let's do a quick survey. survey. How many of you heard a money sermon the first time that you visited a particular church? That's totally a cheap answer. Some of you are visiting here for the first time tonight, so that's not great. It sticks in your memory, right, that you heard a money sermon right out of the gate. 
flip of that question, how many of you heard a money sermon the last time that you visited a particular church? <laughs> it's like a little bit more bleak. The whole thing, it stands, it stands out in your memory. Money sermons make us uncomfortable. They just do. They get under our skin. And they do it not only because they can feel manipulative, which they can, or because it can feel like a church is just trying to ask you or to talk you into giving more. Sometimes they make us uncomfortable because the truth is they are uncomfortable and they're confusing. Preachers will talk on the one hand about money like it's nothing, like the only real Christians are the ones who, who give everything away. And then in the next breath, they'll talk about money like it's everything, like it's proof that you're doing the right thing so that you're praying the right way or living the right way. And all the while, there's this expectation, right, that the church at least is supposed to have money. Otherwise, people will get laid off or ministry programs will wither. It can all get pretty confusing. Like, money's bad for you, it's good for us. <laughs> and the truth is, there's a reason that we don't preach about money very often here at Revolution. And the truth is, that it's not a very righteous reason. The reason is because I get it really uncomfortable talking about money. If you know me, I'm famously, famously like cheap and like the bad way of being cheap. <laughs> and I get really confused about it. But the truth is that like living with money, either the abundance of money or the lack of money is pretty inescapable in the world that we have made for ourselves. And so because our God is perhaps above all other things, compassionate and patient towards us, He's chosen to talk to us about it, to talk to us about money. And he's chosen to do this. He's chosen to do this in two particular and connected ways. First, he talks about what money and our ways of dealing with money can reveal about where our hope and our trust are placed. And then second, he talks about what money can do if we have the same priorities with it that he has. So those become our big questions for tonight. It's how we're going to organize our time. What can our approaches to money reveal? And then what can or what should money do? So we're going to talk through two parables here. We're going to start with one that's in the 25th chapter of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is teaching in Jerusalem here mere days before his arrest and his murder. And he's in the temple courts. And his audience for this parable consists not not only of his typical followers who are predominantly poor, but also these more wealthy people of the city. And he tells them this story in chapter 25. He says, again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and he settled accounts with them. The one who had received five bags of gold brought, brought the other five Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. 
The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. I'm not being dramatic, I lost my place, actually. <laughs> His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. See, you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have, will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, there's some confusing stuff right out of the gate here, right? The first thing that stands out to me is the parable starts with Jesus saying, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he tells a story where the figure that we're inclined, when we hear that opening, the figure we're inclined to see is the God figure here, the master of the servants, is not, we hope, very God-like. Instead, the master hears harsh, right? He is known to be somebody who harvests what he has not sown. And furthermore, he's absent at the start of the story, which doesn't seem great for our analog for God. So I think we have to begin by clearing this part of the story, and that is what's going on here? What's going on? And my hypothesis is this. I think what's going on is that the focus of this story and its connection to the kingdom of heaven isn't about how Jesus sees or describes the master. It is about how we do, about how we see the master. I think if we look at it from that frame, what are the differences between those first two servants and the third one? How do they each see the money that was entrusted to them? What do they understand their responsibility to be? What do their actions, to go back to our question, right? What do their actions with that money reveal about their assumptions and their fears? Now, the first two servants in the story are functionally interchangeable, right? The five bag guy, the two bag guy. It's a bit of like a Goldilocks fairy tale rule of three situation that we've got. The first and second choices don't matter. They're not really relevant, except in as much as they contrast with the third one, with the baby bear story. And that baby bear is the real focus of the whole thing. And the reason you have two of one type of answer and one of the other instead of just one and one is because it, it helps contrast, right, which is the more common and which is the, which is the answer that's out of place. It puts a focus on, this, on the stray answer. Well, let's look. What are the right answers then? What are the things the two older, the two older? Ooh, that was a weird, that was a first child bias thing to say. <laughs> Ooh. Anyways, what are, the, what are those first two right answers? What do they have in common? Well, the first two servants, they put the money that they are given to work, right? One turns five, into, five bags into 10, the other turns two into four, 
And it's notable that what isn't noted in the story is how they do that, what they do to multiply the money. And I think the case can be made that it's not particularly relevant. What matters, though, what I'm contending matters, is how those two servants saw the master. They both saw, and we see this in the story, they both saw the master as somebody who trusted them, somebody who shared responsibility with them, and then as somebody who would generously reward their good efforts. When the master returns, the first two servants seek him out, right? They seem eager to talk to him. They seek him out to tell him what they've done. And after they share the good news, the master frames all of this, what they've done, in terms of their faithfulness to him, of their trusting loyalty to him. He says, you have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. So there, there are two quick things to note about that response. First, it's notable that he gives both of the first two servants the same reward, right? Whether the guy multiplies into five bags or two bags, they get the same exact statement back to them. They are invited to come and share the happiness, and they're in charge of many things. And then the second reward is that that reward is framed as participation in the master's kingdom. They are invited to come and share his happiness. So in summary then, these two servants see the bags that they were given by the master as this opportunity to join in the master's work and their faithfulness to that task is met by the master's faithfulness back to them. But the third servant, right, baby bear, is, our, is the one who stands out. And the reason he stands out is because his view of the master is rooted in judgment and it's rooted in scarcity that's rooted above all in fear. He thinks of the master as this cruel and angry thief. And so when this, this thief gives him a bag of gold, he sees that bag of gold as, as like a test for himself. He's afraid of it. And so he does what we do with the things that we're afraid of. He puts it away from himself and he buries it in the ground. And then when the master returns, he seems to drag his feet, right, to talk to the master. He's the last guy up to the plate here. And when he finally does speak, it's notable how different his approach is from the approaches of those other two servants. Whereas they both started with, master, you entrusted me. The third servant begins, master, I knew that you were a hard man and I was afraid. The master then responds to the servant by saying, so you knew that I would harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. I think there's something interesting here in the way that the master frames all of this. One, he doesn't deny or confirm the allegations that the servant has made. He just repeats them back to him. And when he does, he exposes that those allegations against the master, the ways that the servant is judging the master, are still just deflections from what's actually going on. If the issue was really this master's patterns of unjust dealing, of taking what he didn't earn, the servant's actions in burying the gold still don't make any sense. Why not do what he said, right? Why not at least invest? I think, I think the reason Jesus tells the story is the point seems to be that this servant never saw the gold as something entrusted to him. 
He never saw the gold as something entrusted to him. To fulfill the analogy, his attitude towards the money, it was something dangerous, something unsafe to touch that revealed misunderstandings in both how he saw the master and, and misunderstandings about how the master saw him. The master he was afraid of, the master he acts in reaction to, the one he's imagining, is somebody who would never trust a mere servant and somebody who would certainly never share their kingdom with one. But the experiences that we witness in the other two servants would tell us that Baby Bear is wrong about all that, right? The master did entrust them. He will share his kingdom. So what, right? What can we learn from all this? I don't think the point here is as simple as, hey, rich Western American Christians, go invest your money in churches, invested in the stock market, invested in whatever, Bitcoin. I don't know what you're up to. And if you do that, if you just invest your money, then God's going to reward you. And that's how this works. We were faithful investors, and then God gives us blessings back. In fact, I think if that's what you're taking away from the story, I'm going to challenge you and say that I think that's a gross misreading of what's happening. I think the point here instead is this. I think the point here is that we should be asking ourselves, do I think, do I think my God is the kind of master who expects me to participate with him in the work of the kingdom? Do I think God is the kind of master who expects me to participate with him in the work of the kingdom? And what does my attitude towards money suggest or reveal about my answer to that question? Am I trying, well, that was a dramatic cutoff of the air conditioner. (laughs) Am I trying to keep money separate from me? Am I trying to avoid thinking about it in the context of my faith? Am I treating it like it's something embarrassing? The answer for me is yes, very much yes. But I could see, and what we, what we could challenge ourselves to see, is to see money as something that we've been entrusted with. Not just to meet our material needs, but to reflect our beliefs about who God is. An opportunity to reflect what we believe about God. I, for one, don't think of God as somebody trying to grow a cosmic bank account. I don't think that's what he's about. I think of God as somebody who is radically generous. I think of God as somebody who's profoundly compassionate, somebody who not only meets our needs, but wildly exceeds our needs. And if that's how I see him, if that's how I see the master, and if money is something that can reflect my beliefs about the master, am I being faithful? So this is point number one. Money reveals the beliefs about God that we are investing in. How we're using our money reveals who we think God is. But what about the second question? What can money do? Well, to answer that, we're going to look at what is famously one of the most difficult parables in the Bible, I found out when I started, when I read it and was like, ooh, I don't know what to do here. And then I like did a bunch of Googling and searching and like reading and commentaries and everybody's like, we don't know what to do either. I was like, that is not helpful. But we're going to look at it. It comes from Luke 16. And it goes like this. 
Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and he asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. And the manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm too ashamed or I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. When he heard about all of this, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, some of you are like getting to the point in the story where you're like, what is happening? Exactly. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And now you know where you are. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both God and money. You did not know that that verse that you've heard a million times came at the end of that weird story, did you? <laughs> Admit it. But man, why? Like, the reason you don't know it is why. Like, what do those have to do with each other? I said at the beginning, this parable is famously difficult, and here's why, right? Doesn't it seem in the story like the servant just ripped his master off? And how is ripping off your boss right before he fires you shrewd? And more than that, how is it commendable to rip off your boss right before he fires you? And how do you draw that line from that story to those famous closing verses, you cannot serve both God and money? Well, I have a trick, or I have an idea. It's not my idea, I borrowed it from somebody else, but I'll share it with you. I think the trick here is I think you have to read between the lines, and specifically in this way. If you are managing someone else's money, where does your money come from? Think in terms of brokers, right, or agents. The answer, right, is that you make your money on percentages. You make your money as a portion of whatever the deal is that you're managing. And it turns out that the same was true in Jesus's day. And in Jesus' day, it was in fact common practice for the manager of a wealthy person's affairs and estate to charge interest, right, on the accounts. And it was even permissible up to 100% interest based on whatever the, the good was. And I think if we hold that possibility, which the scripture doesn't confirm, but I think is reasonable, if we hold that reasonable possibility in mind, I think it gives us a way in to what the story might be about. 
what is the manager in the story doing? I think it's possible. And in fact, I think the fact that the rich man isn't outraged at the end of the story, I think that strongly suggests that what the manager's doing, what the manager's doing is he's cutting everything out from his own portion. He's giving up his own percentages. So the master's getting all the money that he's owed and the discounts that the manager's offering are coming from him. Realizing that he's soon to be out of work, he adjusts the counts by, moving his, by removing his own fees and thus he does these lindies this favor in the hopes that when he is out of the job, they're going to help him out in the future, that they'll owe him. And that, I think, is the shrewdness that the rich man praises. And I think it helps us see how Jesus might draw a connection between the manager's wisdom and another way of looking at our answer to the question of what money can do. He says it, right? He says it can make friends. I'll acknowledge that sounds weird and even a bit crass, right? Like, if you're rich, like, go buy yourself some friends. It feels like the kind of thing we would say you can't do or you shouldn't do. But I think we have to look at it again, right? Like, what does it say? Jesus says in Luke 16, 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. That's pretty direct, but... That last part here is important too, because what kinds of friends can welcome you into eternal dwellings? Well, it would only be friends who've come to share a common faith with you, right? Who've preceded you in death, I suppose, as the story goes. I think what's happening here, I think the form in this parable ends up being similar to the form that we saw when we looked at the parable of the friend who was seeking bread in our last of these like interlude sermons. And that story, if you remember, the neighbor who's being asked for a favor finally relents, not because he, he feels like anything positive towards the person who's begging him, but because he's sort of overwhelmed by the man's shameless audacity. And at the end of that story, Jesus says another thing that you've probably heard before. He says, which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The point is that if a worldly rich man can appreciate the shrewdness of giving up your brokerage freeze to make a few friends, how much more so does God, whose very nature is abundance and generosity and love, how much more so does God appreciate the wisdom of giving up the stuff you can't keep in order to gain the stuff you can't lose? What can money do? What can money do? Money can be invested in people. It can be invested in relationships. It can be invested in the safety and in the security of other people. It can pay a bill, right? It can, it can order groceries. It can bail someone out of jail. It can hire a lawyer. It can forgive debt. It can fund a ministry. It can cover the fees of an adoption. It can relieve somebody's burden. It can allow somebody to breathe. When it's invested in these kinds of ways, I think money is reflecting the character of God who pours out his own grace abundantly for us. And so I'm, I'm going to contend here that the second point tonight, what can money do? 
I think the point here is that our best investment is people. That our best investment is people. There's an old joke, right, about two friends at a funeral. The first looks towards the casket. He leans over to the other and he asks, how much money did he leave behind? And the second friend replies, all of it. You don't have to laugh. I didn't say it. I didn't try to frame it like a joke. I was just telling you it's a joke. There's another joke, right, about any time a quest or an adventure fails, where you say, like, maybe, maybe the real treasure are the friends that you made along the way. Both of these jokes, I think, such as they are not very funny, as we have established, <laughs> they both ring true to me tonight as we think about a Christian approach to money. What does our approach to the money that we have reveal about who we think God really is? Is he really somebody who's inviting us to participate with him in his kingdom? And if he is that, if that is what he's doing, if that's who he is, what limits is he modeling for us when it comes to his own generosity? Does he leave any metaphorical money behind when it comes to his treatment of us? He doesn't. And then just behind that thought about God's radical generosity What do the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus teach me about where God invests? There's only one answer. He invests in people. He invests in people. Investing in people, if you look at the whole Bible, is what God has always, always done. It's always been who he is. Now, we have consistently said here at Revolution that what we want most for people is for people to be radically generous and that we don't attach and we don't want to attach that generosity exclusively to our church. We always, I mean, I've said it a million times. I hope that you've heard it and that you believe it. If you want to give to Revolution, that's fantastic, but I don't care. I really don't care. What I care about most is that you are giving somewhere to something that you think is important, that you're investing in people and that you're learning to grow in that generosity. You're welcome to give here. Your generosity to revolution is critical for our ability to keep going. That's all true. But giving to an institution like this church, if I'm honest with you, giving to an institution like the church can be a total cop-out for you, can't it? I don't want you in your giving to lose sight of what giving is for. Whether we feel we've been given five bags of gold, two bags, or one bag, we have a chance, even a responsibility, each one of us does, to use what we have to show other people what we believe to be true about God, who we believe God to be. That's what our money is for. It's what it reveals. That's the real question here. How can your generosity reveal the heart of God? I'll say it again because that if you walk away with nothing else, walk away with that tonight. How can your generosity reveal the heart of God? If you think about all that you have, not as something that you've been given as this test of your morality, like I don't want to mess it up, I don't want to do the wrong thing with it, but as this opportunity to treat other people like God would treat them, to show other people God, who he is by mirroring his kindness and his generosity towards them. If you saw money, what you have, whether it's a lot or a little like that, what would change? What would actually change about where your money goes? Or even, and this is where I'm most convicted tonight, how you feel about it. 
because I'm afraid of it. <laughs> I'm afraid of it. And I'm convicted by these stories that I need to stop being afraid of it. I need to stop being embarrassed about it. I need to stop worrying about it. Because the truth is that it's something that I can feel excited about because of what it can do and what it can reveal. So this week, the challenge is, is, is personal and simple. Take a fresh look at your own generosity. And I'll go a step further than just thinking about it. I'm going to ask you to talk to somebody about it. Talk to somebody about your attitude towards generosity. We can chase answers to these questions about how we think about and deal with wealth, how we think about and manage money. We can chase the answers to those questions together. And in fact, that's the kind of thing that I think a church is meant to do. We're supposed to be wrestling with this thing and uncovering this thing and exploring this thing and chasing after this thing together. So don't just walk away from here and have some private talk with God. Talk with God, but talk to somebody too. I think that's what we're here for.